Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought, continuing with our series on Fire on the Horizon. The next section we're going to talk about is ways of being in the world. So we've covered the last two times different angles on the idea of the tree of life and what that means and the fruit of the tree of life and why we need to live life going forward. And then, you know, the rewards at the end of our life are the fruits. So now we're going to talk about actually what we're doing during our life. So I'll just start out with this quote and then I'll ask you a question about it so we get clearer at the get-go. So, say, being separated from God is a miserable existence because wickedness never was happiness, as a famous scripture. Um, and in Alma 41 it says, They are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. So the lesson of choice is accountability. In verse 7 of Alma 41 it says, And thus they stand or fall, for, behold, they are their own judges, whether to do good or evil. The bottom line for Alma is that God is just because everyone will get exactly what they freely choose in this life. If they desired evil, then evil will be restored to them, and if they desired good, then good will be restored to them in the judgment. And that's from verse 14. So no one can complain if God has given them exactly what they desire. The universal truth is that we receive what we give, for, as it says in verse 15 of Alma 41, that which ye do send out shall return to you again and be restored. So we've talked about that a little bit in the past, so it's just kind of this, the law of restoration, or, you know, it's known by other names, I think the idea of karma is similar to that. How literal are you taking it when you say what you send out will return to you? Are you meaning in this life, or just in general, in the judgment, or both? Well, it works in both, and works different ways. So try this the next time you enter a room. Walk in, smile at everybody, and say, hey, everybody, how you doing? Notice the energy that you say it with. And I'll bet that you get back the same kind of energy and the same kind of joyful response with the joy and happiness of being other people that you've given. Try it again, walk in and go, crap, do I have to be with these people? See what kind of response you get. Notice that people will mirror the energy and the way in which you approach them. And this is especially true with our children, I would suggest. But it's also true in that as we live our lives, there are natural consequences that follow from our actions. Now, I can summarize this section, and in fact, the entire book, in this simple statement. There are natural consequences of decisions. One of these natural consequences that is the overriding theme of this book is that we cannot have the joy of intimate, loving relationships unless we freely choose to love. Nobody else can do it for us, and it's up to us whether we make the choice. That's all there is to it. It's that simple. It comes down to that. So what we receive is going to be dependent largely on the choices that we make. And I literally believe that love begets love, that people respond to love. Now, it may not happen immediately, but over time, love always wins, in my view. In my view, love is the, the greatest power in the universe and is always victorious to the extent we give it a chance. It's also true to the extent we refuse to love. Nobody on earth or in heaven can cause us to love. And if we refuse to love, we cannot, not even God, can give us the blessings of having intimate, loving relationships if we refuse to love. Okay, and then uh, another question before we go further. So, 
reading this chapter, it got kind of, I don't know, because I know we've been using kind of the metaphor of the fall or the state that we're in as when we came, we chose to come to earth from the pre-existent life. But it seems sometimes in this section in particular that when you're referring to a state of being separated from God, it's not necessarily just the leaving of God's actual presence and then being on earth, but are are we getting to like the idea of sin and, and that kind of thing? We are in three senses. First, sin. I always think of the Latin word sinem, to be without. And when I think of sin, to sin is to be without God in the world. It's to create separation. I think, you know, for purposes of, of this discussion, what is essential is that we're looking at ways of being in the world. And one way of being in the world is to be conscious and to choose how we will be. The other is, and, and you know, Lehi divides the world into things that act and things that are acted upon. That's the way he cleaves the world. Things that act are free. They act for themselves, but things that are acted upon are not free. And the strange paradox is we can always choose to be conscious and not to have our buttons pushed. So let me give some examples. I think the people who know me really well know that I have certain buttons that if you push them, very often I'm going to act in the same way that I've often acted in the past. The only reason that would change is if I'm conscious and choose not to simply react. So we can either be an act and a first cause, or we can be a reaction and be caused. And what we do is we enter into the world either as a cause, choosing our lives consciously to be as they are and to maintain consciousness and to choose love, or we simply go along with the deterministic flow of causes. I can make myself a cause, or I can make myself something that is merely caused and at the mercy of the causes that go before me. If I react unconsciously, I'm simply responding to the stimuli in my environment. I'm not choosing my response. I'm just giving the response I always give. It's just built into me. So we can choose to enter into a world of causal determinism where we essentially give away our freedom and we choose to live in the past. How do we do that? We choose to always be at the mercy of the causes that went before us and to act the way that we always have in the past. And so in essence, what we're doing when we do that is denying the effect of the atonement. If we believe that we could never change, we would clearly be denying the atonement. But often it's just much simpler than that, and that is we just simply become unconscious. We simply react. We simply become a cause that can be actuated by others, or we simply, you know, we have these issues in our lives, and we simply recreate, reproduce, and replicate the issues that we have in our lives over and over and over again, because they keep showing up for us in the same way. And so this is another way of, of cleaving the world into ways of being in the world. And one is to be at cause, and the other is to be caused. So people often ask me, well, do you believe that all people have libertarian free will? And I always say, the libertarian free will means we can choose otherwise, given all the circumstances that have obtained before a choice is made. And my response to that is, we can choose to be free. The strange thing is, we can also choose to be unfree by simply losing consciousness. So I, I guess you're saying, for example, if someone's parents abuse them, it's obviously very likely and it's in their psyche and it's kind of a natural thing for them to then reflect that same behavior on their children just because of psychology and the way that they learn to deal with stressful situations and disobedience or something. But you're saying, though that's maybe the natural thing that you could fall into if that happens, you still have the ability to choose 
not to do it, but you have to kind of be awake to it. You have to be noticing. You can't just be in the f asleep, as you say, to what's going on, just d acting naturally. Yeah, you have to affirmatively choose. And I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, I'm not going to be like my dad? Now, you're my son, and I'm pretty sure that you said that because I'm sure there are more than a few things about me that you would like not to replicate in your life. But the truth is you probably found yourself unthinkingly responding the same way you saw me respond, and you've replicated the very things in your life that you didn't want to simply because you went unconscious. And there's a lot I love about my dad. There are a few things I didn't like about him so much. I always swore I'd never be like my dad in those respects, but then I found myself turning into my father. We all in these respects replicate our parents in our lives, not only in our DNA, but in the way that we have learned to respond, to simply react. It's built into us. And so we simply replicate the past unless we affirmatively choose to transcend it. If we choose to overcome the past, it takes consciousness of saying to ourselves, I'm not going to respond like that. It really will frustrate the people around us because they like the buttons that we have. They like to push the buttons and always get the same response, and they know what they're going to get until we choose to transcend it and, and not simply be at the mercy of the causal order. And then it frustrates them because, like, hold it. You're responding in a way that, that I can't control, and, and it's unanticipated, and you're just surprising me. People who are truly free are always a surprise because we can't merely predict how they're going to respond to what we do. The ones that are, are unfree are the ones that are always predictable. We can, you know, I know what they're going to do. It's like an addict. I know what they're going to do today, tomorrow, and the next day, because that's what it means to be addicted. The people who are free are endlessly creative. The people who are stuck in the past are endlessly not creative. <laughs> They've given up their creativity, and all they are is, is replicating the world that went before. Maybe this is a stereotype, but do you, now that you're a little older, it's, there's a stereotype that the older you get, the more kind of set in your ways you get. So have you noticed that happening? Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> Not you specifically, just, you know, people in general. <laughs> yeah, I find, I find I have a lot of momentum in my life. I, I get up and do the same thing every day. You know, I get up, dress, and go to work, sit down behind a desk and try to solve legal problems. Of course, you know, everything I do every time is endlessly new because that's the nature of the work I do. But, yeah, I mean, if I'm out of that pattern in my life, sometimes it's uncomfortable. I'm outside of my comfort zone, and they're forced to grow because that's where growth takes place. But, yeah, I mean, inertia in life can simply set in. And change is hard for people. I mean, we talked about this a little bit. You know, a part of the story of Adam and Eve is that they were forced to undergo this incredible change. Their entire world is revolutionized and transformed. Their very way of being in the world is transformed. And that's what the Christian is called to do. The Christian is called to live a new life in Christ. And so there's this incredible transformation that takes place where instead of living life all alone, we now have a dual life where Christ takes up a boat in us. And a part of our thought processes are inspired by the light that lives within us. And we're not stuck by the past anymore because we're conscious and we've let go of the past. It no longer enslaves us. So we are now free in a sense that we have transcended the past and we're not at the mercy of the causal order that went before us. We now become creators for causes. This is another way in which the story of Adam and Eve, I think, is very insightful. The, the reason that having knowledge of good and evil makes them like God is that they now have a choice. And it is this ability to choose. And I'm sounding a lot like Immanuel Kant here, but that's not the point of the story. <laughs> 
Adam and Eve are recognized to be like the gods because they have this godlike ability now to recognize the difference and to choose between them. It is this creative power of choice that makes us like God because choice is always a creative power. We become co-creators in the world when we choose to make the world over as we would like it to be. If we just let the world be the way it is and act upon us, we're not creators. We're just at the mercy of the causal order that went before us. Another way to put that is, is that we're living in the past. Another way to put that is we've denied the atonement and there's no change happening. A Christian is called to be endlessly new in life, endlessly creative. Yeah, I think it was in some sci-fi book I read, but they were trying to create an artificial intelligence, and then they found that the true way that a consciousness is on the human level of being self-aware is that it has to be able to suffer and see the suffering around it, and then know that the world should be better than that, and then work to make it better than that. Like, that's, that's the key to, like, humanity, according to that book. So I thought that was kind of interesting. No, and I think that's right. I think True AI can only exist when what the machine is doing is not deterministically entailed in the algorithms that are governing it. The problem is is that the algorithms governing it are all there is to AI, and so it's very hard to see a, a person ever emerging out of an AI algorithm or set of programs. They can learn in the sense that they can replicate and change the, the there are a number of algorithms and over time, the algorithms will evolve, but they're still just evolving algorithms. To be truly creative is to be godlike, and, and that's the sense in the story of Adam and Eve. We become like God by exercising this power of creativity, by not being at the mercy of the past. And so the way of being in the world that we're being taught in the story, essentially, is to not be at the mercy of the past, not to simply be controlled by the causal order that went before us, our upbringing, our predisposed issues that we've bought into, not being controlled by the addictions that we have or the habits that we formed, but to truly be creative and conscious in our life, to create the life that we choose to have, and to create the world around us, therefore, in, in the image of the choice that we've made, and therefore joining God as co-creators of the world. All right. Well, let me jump back a little bit in the discussion, and then we'll catch up to where we were. So back into kind of the idea of this is still related to ways of being in the world, but we're talking about, you know, your choices. And I asked about how sin plays into this kind of, and this quote kind of plays in there. So you say, there are simply ways of being that have natural consequences. There are irrevocable laws upon which all blessings are predicated, and we cannot have the blessings unless we are obedient to these laws, as it says in Doctrine and Covenants section 130. So as it says in Alma, those who choose to be without God in the world are in the gall of bitterness because they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. But, you know, I've heard this in Sunday school, and I like this train of thought because, you know, in a lot of Christianity and even in some, you know, in Mormonism itself, we tend down this path sometimes. But, you know, you can think of the commandments or, you know, the, the rules that you're supposed to follow as just rules similar to, you know, don't jaywalk when the light's red, or don't park in a no-parking zone. You know, those are kinds of rules, but they're not like ultimate rules, whereas you're saying, you know, commandments are more like, hey, the universe works in a certain way, and if you follow these guidelines or these rules, you're going to find that this is what leads to happiness. This is more like a step-by-step -step guide to how to relate and be happy with the, your relationships with God and with other people, as opposed to like, 
just random arbitrary rules like you probably shouldn't you know kill each other just because so two observations first the word commandment at least in latin comes to the word comanere or comano everybody will recognize the word mano as the word for hand it means literally just to give a hand to assist is what a commandment is it's a way of assisting us to see the signposts of how to love other beings. All of the commandments have a single purpose, and that is they all come down to the law of love. They all come down to teaching us how to love one another. So all the commandments are really there simply to assist us to learn how to love one another. And here's why being without God in the world is contrary to the nature of happiness. We are the kind of beings that fulfill our purpose and meaning in life when we are in fulfilling intimate relationships. We find our greatest happiness in these kinds of relationships. And to be without God in the world is essentially to deny the primary relationship where love is given and received. And so to be in this way is, again, to be without love in the world, essentially. So it's only when we fulfill our purpose, when we overcome the natural person, there's one nature to be, you know, the result of all the causes that went before. And to be a cause who is choosing to give the gift of love that we have to give. And in this way, we realize this happiness that is just inherent within us when we find ourselves in meaningful relationships that are fulfilling for us. And so the commandments are really just there to assist us to see how it is that loving people treat each other. So, you know, we've been through this before minimally. People who, who love each other don't kill each other. They don't envy each other. They don't, you know, steal from each other. This is a minimal standard. You'll recognize that from the Ten Commandments. But the maximal standard of love is taught by Christ on Sermon on the Mount. And that is, you know, if you truly love somebody, a parent doesn't just see a shivering child and they, they've got a coat. If the child is still shivering, the, ch- the parent takes the coat off of their own back and gives it to the child. So if you're sued at law for one coat, give two coats. This parent, if the child is acting up and slaps the parent, the parent, the loving parent at least, doesn't react and smack their kid around the room. The loving parent just learns to not act or react, I should say, in, in a way that is violent and simply returns the love for whatever the child is doing. And then we extend every, you know, this kind of relationship to everyone in the world. Now, this is a real challenge. You know, to love everybody in the way that Christ has taught us to love them on the Sermon on the Mount. But it is in this way that we fulfill our, you know, the fullness of the purpose and meaning of our nature, and we find the greatest love. And in finding the greatest love, we find the greatest happiness. All right. I'll sum this next quote up because we already started talking about it, and then I'll jump into the next quote. But basically, you talk about how now in the story of Adam and Eve, now they know good and evil and they can choose between them and they're, they're free to choose their own wills. And that's the purpose of this life, to make that choice, to you know either move away from God or while you're away from God, learn to choose into that relationship. But then you go to this quote here, you say, Strange as it might undoubtedly sound, God really does not want everyone to be in his kingdom absolutely and unconditionally. Rather, he wants those in his kingdom to be persons who freely choose to be there. However, now we confront another problem. Because we left by our own free choice, justice requires that we be forever cut off from God's presence, according to Alma 42. So, you ask, why does justice require us to remain cut off? 
And this is, again, where I kind of got the lines blurred. It's like, well, are we talking about coming to this earth here, or is this talking about sin? Because, like, at least in LDS thought, it was God's plan for us to come here. It wasn't just like, hey, we're going to leave you, God. See you later. Ha ha. You know, so is that talking about that, or are you talking more about when you're in this life, choosing choices that lead you away from God, and then we need to ultimately choose to go back? Well, remember what sin is. Sin is the destruction damage to or refusal of relationship and so in essence adam and eve have freely chosen to create distance in their relationship from god they did that when they hid they made a free choice and god is honoring their choice to fear him and not be in his presence okay and remember what the law of justice is in the in the book of mormon it is the law of restoration and the law of restoration gives us what we choose and so if we choose to be outside of God's presence, that's the choice that God honors, and it's just for him to honor our choices. Now, there are a lot of reasons that we've made the choice. One of the primary reasons is that we need a separation from God in order so that we can make a free choice to love him. A free choice cannot be one that just exists as a matter of status and the choice to love others isn't one just as a matter of status. There are a lot of children who truly don't like their parents at all. And merely being in a relationship of status doesn't mean that we've chosen to love each other. Now, love may grow out of such relationships. But the fact is, we've been separated from God. We chose to leave his presence so that we could confront a world where his presence is not obvious and his existence is not clear. So that we're making decisions that are not, in a sense, coerced by the obviousness of his power and glory. It's more important still that we have chosen to confront the opposition that will be the engine of our growth in this life. And so we've chosen to leave God to trudge a world, if you will, where we confront genuine challenges. And... In this regard, I mean, some of the challenges just suck the air right out of us. They knock us to our knees, and some of us knock us to the ground, and it's hard to get back up. But the truth is that we've chosen this life. We chose to leave God's presence. Now, the whole purpose of life is found in the choice that's now given to us. In making the choice to partake of the fruit, Adam and Eve symbolically have made all other choices possible. And the choice that we now have open to us is the choice to enter back into relationship with God as a matter of our free choice to be in relationship with God, not one that is simply given because of our existence. And so the bottom line for Alma is we're now placed on in a state of probation where we can repent. And repentance is a very simple matter. Repentance is this. It is doing everything we can to heal the relationship that we have damaged and to make another choice. We have chosen to walk on a road going away from God. The word repentance in Hebrew is shuv. It simply means turn around. And so the notion is we've chosen to walk out of the garden. We're walking a path all by ourselves away from God. He's now giving us the choice to turn around, to walk back in his direction where he is waiting for us with extended arms, waiting to hug us and accept us back into relationship. But it has to be our choice this time. And so that's repentance. And the entire purpose of life is to give us a space in which we can repent. And repentance is just making a different choice than we've made before. It's the opportunity to not be stuck with the choices we've made before, but to be able to make a different choice and see the consequences of those choices. 
Alright, and then you say, God stands with his arms open and ready to receive us, always ready to embrace us with his love. But if our hearts are hardened against him, we will run the other way, because we judge ourselves as evil and not worthy of his presence. As it says in Alma 41.7, And thus they stand or fall, for behold, they are their own judges, whether to do good or evil. Question here, maybe we'll have a better understanding there, but like, you know, there's the problem of self-deception here at least, where some people that are actually good are always judging themselves, thinking that they're not good enough, and then there's some people that are actually not that great of people, but they are just like, yeah, I'm doing great, woohoo! Are you saying that kind of mentality won't be able to be in this particular iteration of self-judgment? or No, in fact, all self-judgment that we're not worthy of God's presence is a self-deception. We imagine that God loathes us and won't accept us into his presence when the fact is he's, he's willing to accept us just the way we are and urges us to start walking on the path back toward him at any moment. He is always willing to accept us. The notion that we're not worthy of love is, is the primary self-deception. It's the ultimate self-deception. The fact is that God loves us, and God's not wrong about the fact that we are loved. He loves us just because we are who and what we are. This is an amazing fact. No matter who you know, no matter what they've done, take the most you know heinous person who's ever lived. God still loves that person. Now, love has nuances. You know, love seeks the best interest of the person, and God will never stop seeking the best interest of any of any person ever. Given where they are, what will serve them best to grow and to come back into fulfilling relationship of love and to realize happiness will always be God's end goal for us. But we have to accept it freely. There's this fact also, God will always honor our choices about what the purposes of our own lives are. And so we are free to simply reject God and walk on our own way. I mean, this is the very center of the entire book, if you will. If loving relationships are to exist at all, they must be freely chosen. They can't be coerced. They can't be forced. They can't just be a matter of, you know, some kind of mathematical formula. Love is a free choice made by a person. And this is the ultimate choice that we've been asked to make in this life. That's what repentance is all about. Now, it's not merely about our relationship with God. It's about our relationship with each other as well. And when I say we do everything we can to heal the relationship, if I've wronged somebody, then I confess to them my wrong. If I've taken something from them, then I return it and restore to them what I've taken. If I have harmed them in any way, I ask their forgiveness and ask them to be open to the possibility that I can re-earn their trust to be in a relationship again. But it's their choice. It's not my choice. Whether they want relationship with me is up to them, and if I've caused them a lot of pain, they may hesitate. So God has put us in this way, and so we have another way of being in the world, and this is either being open-hearted or, or hard-hearted. Ultimately, the choice to love is a choice to open our hearts to accept others into our very being and to give ourselves to the beloved in our very being. We can also reject others. We can harden our hearts and simply reject relationship altogether. We have this capacity, and it's up to us which we're going to live. All right. So probably the next part we would jump to is about the cause and effect thing. We already talked about that some. Did you want to talk about that more? There are two ways of being in the world. Again, to cleave the world, things that act for themselves and things to be acted upon. And if we are a first cause, then, of course, we're reflecting God's divine power of creation. But we can truly give our freedom away. 
Now, here's the problem, and here's where we leave this particular thought experiment in this chapter, and that is we've all chosen to give our freedom away. <laughs> and once we've become subject to the chain of causal constraints that have existed forever in the past, how do we ever free ourselves from that? How do I free myself from the addictions and habits? How do I free myself from the buttons that I've learned from my parents? How do I free myself from simply reacting and becoming a cause for myself? Now, this is not as easy as it sounds. Everybody knows who's tried to overcome an addiction that this is not an easy thing to do. Everybody knows who has habits that changing habits is not easily done. It requires constant consciousness. Everybody who's lived any, you know, significant amount of life at all realizes that choosing the life that we want, as opposed to the life that simply comes with going with the flow, is the challenge of life. And we can either have a life that simply happens to us where we're the victim of what went before, or we can have a life, but we have to be free. And the point is, is that the Gospels, when they talk about, quote-unquote, the natural man, they see us as at the mercy of this long chain of causal events that we can't free ourselves from. And it requires the love of another. And that's where we pick up in, in the next meditation. Okay, well, till next time then, I guess we can leave it there. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.